Welcome to Lecture 5 in our series on the trial of Jesus Christ, Pontius Pilate. In Lecture 4, we left off at the end of the Jewish trial, when day was breaking and the Jewish leaders were getting ready to transfer their prisoner to the Roman authority. In Lecture 5 here, we talk about that Roman authority, about Pontius Pilate, who he was, what we know about him through history. We'll also talk about what his role was with respect to the charges he was about to hear and how he was supposed to have conducted them. In other words, we're going to go cross-cultural and leave the Jews behind us and concentrate on the Romans. We need to dive into Roman history a bit after discussing why we even need to do so. As we saw in Lecture 4, the Jewish authorities did not have the right of the sword and could not put anyone to death when they thought they deserved it by violating one of their laws. Only the Romans could do that, because Judea was not a free state. But even though the Roman procurator had the right of the sword, he didn't have to swing it. He had to make his own independent findings, apart from what any other local tribunal had made. And one thing that no Roman procurator wanted to do was to get involved in local law, including Jewish law. There are three clear examples in the life of St. Paul. When Paul was denounced by the Jews in Corinth to the Roman consul Gallio, Seneca's brother, Gallio rejected their charges and said, quote, If these are questions of doctrine and titles of your law, look to it yourselves. I have no wish to decide such matters. On another occasion, sometime around 53 AD, the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias took Paul under protection from the Jews in Jerusalem when it became clear to him that the charges related only to disputed issues of Jewish law. And the same happened with Festus, the Roman governor of Caesarea, about six years later in 59 AD. He showed no interest in Paul when it was clear that only Jewish law was involved. When I mention that weird overlay between Roman and Jewish jurisdiction, one aspect of it was crimes concerning the temple. The Jews did have authority to punish by death any Jew who had transgressed the confines of the temple, but that was because Roman law protected Jewish sites and the offense was punishable under Roman law. For example, the procurator Comanus executed a Roman soldier who had contemptuously torn a scroll of the Torah. And even in that example, it was the Roman doing the executing not agents of the Sanhedrin. The Jews were in a real pickle, as we say, because they had just convicted Jesus of the crime of blasphemy, knowing it was not a crime the Romans could punish. They could only get the Roman procurator's interest in the case by showing that Jesus had committed a capital crime under Roman law. That's also why, after the Jewish trial, no further reference is to be made to the blasphemy thereafter. Well, stop and hold on that thought for a minute. The Jews had just convicted Jesus of a crime they knew the Romans could not and would not punish. So why the heck did they put him on trial for that crime in the first place? Ah, well, that's the setting for this part of our story. That's because these Jewish leaders were very shrewd. Of course, they knew the limits of their independence. And to be sure, they hated those limits. But they had a backstory that would allow them to exert moral pressure on the Roman procurator and get him to do their bidding. And by declaring that Jesus had violated Jewish law, they could rally Jewish sentiment against him and add that to the procurator's pressure cooker. You need to appreciate how clever this really was. They'd just taken advantage of the rare opportunity to arrest Jesus, even though they were unclear on the charges. They apparently went to trial thinking they could convict him on some threat to attack the temple. But that theory blew up in their collective faces. So they went with a blasphemy charge as a fallback. And it worked. Now they needed to devise a way to take a religious crime and turn it into a political crime so they could get the Romans' interest. And let's get clear on the goal here. It wasn't enough to excommunicate Jesus, which they had authority to do and could have readily done. They wanted him dead. With that, let's talk about the particular Roman they wanted to use to achieve their end, Pontius Pilate. 
Because when you get to know the backstory here, you'll see why the Jewish leaders were not just dreaming up something out of thin air. They had something to go on, and if they played their cards right, they'd take the house. In terms of actual fact, we really don't know that much about Pontius Pilate. We don't even know his full name. We know him by two names, but he really had three, like Publius Popilius Laenus, who was a Roman consul in 132 BC. The word Pontius identified him from the Pontii clan, which was a Samnite family in central Italy, just south of Rome, in the Apennine mountain area. The Pontii family were all members of what was called the Equestrian Order. An order, as the name suggests, comprised of higher-level military officers because they had horses, which meant they had money to buy them. So they were fairly high in stature, but not so high as the senatorial class. Pontii was the name of the gens, or tribe, in common to them all. There was an L. period Pontius Aquilus, who was some relation to Pilate, and who had taken part in the murder of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BC. Other Pontii were consuls under Tiberius. So Pontii was the tribal name, and Pilate was the name of one of the families within that tribe. As for his first name, we have no idea what it was. Maybe it was Gus or Bob or Cliff or the Roman equivalent of something like that. Of course, even his family name has led to a lot of speculation, but all without certainty. The family name Pilate comes from one of two words, either the Latin pileus, which means cap or helmet, or the Latin pilum, which means spear or javelin. Either of these words work nice for Pilate if you're among those who like to see a possible connection between a person's name and who the person actually was. Pilate was stubborn, resistant to external thinking, and so it was appropriate he bore the name of cap or helmet. And Pilate was also a pilum, because it was his order that led to the spear or javelin being thrust by one of his subordinates into the sight of Christ on the cross, from which blood and water shot forth for John the witness to see. There never seems to be a shortage of historians who like to sniff at ancient times and accounts of ancient times, as if ancient history was just a bunch of grand storytelling that kept people interested around fireplaces at night and was all based on myth. For much of the 20th century, in fact, it was fashionable for some historians to claim that Pontius Pilate never really existed. He was some literary construct of early Christianity and its need for a boogeyman to blame for the death of a religious leader who probably never existed either. If you want to get on the cover of Time magazine, just come up with ideas like that once in a while. In 1961, Italian archaeologists were excavating in the area of an ancient theater built by Herod the Great in the ancient seaport town of Caesarea Maritima. They found a large stone about three feet high, two feet wide, that included just enough lettering for Latinus to see was a dedication to the stepfather and mother of the Emperor Tiberius by, and here are the actual words carved in that stone, Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judeae, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. That shut up the myth callers. Well, at least as to that historical fact. Two things are of interest from that transcription. One, Pilate's title, Prefect of Judea, which conforms to plenty of other ancient descriptions. And two, we can't see his first name. It's on the damaged part of the stone. No Gus or Bob or Cliff before it, unfortunately. So, yes, he existed. He was an historical figure. How did he qualify for his employment to the job? We know a bit about what Tiberius Caesar wanted in his appointees. He wanted them to be of decent behavior. They needed to be of good character, but they needed to be less than outstanding. If they were outstanding figures, they'd become a threat to him, and he didn't want any of that. Getting appointed to Judea was not a plum appointment. If you're really special, you got important posts like Egypt or Syria. But Judea, hot, dry, teeming with squabbling people who wanted you dead and gone, not really. His job was pretty simple. Secure the tax revenues, keep the peace, establish trade with Rome, and refrain from colonizing the territory. 
Remember, the Romans were smart, and they only wanted one thing, expansion of wealth. They knew that once you start subjugating people, they start fighting back. Don't subjugate them unless you really know you can subjugate them. Better to just profit from their local economy. You help them, they help you, you become an empire. And to keep that profit going, he had to be a pretty good budget guy. He needed to know numbers and the wealth being accumulated around him. He would approve all public works, review the status of slaves, adjudicate wills, issue licenses and permits to use the imperial post. The trade routes were important to him, as were the shipping lanes, as we might call them. Ships could sail around the Mediterranean until about October, when the weather would get rough, and then sailors would wait until about March to get going again. Travel to and from Rome in the alternative went various ways by coastal routes and land and took much longer. You'd be looking at somewhere around a month by open sea and around two months over land. Military carriages were the quickest way. The other thing Pilate was responsible for, like all other procurators around the empire, was to keep minute records of everything going on there daily. Tiberius wanted you to be his eyes and ears. Much of a procurator's job was to dictate news to scribes who would write on thin leaves of wood coated with wax and send them off by ship or carriage back to Rome. And then Tiberius, as he was being transported from Rome to, say, his orgy compound at Capri on the western coast, would read these reports as they came into him from throughout the empire. Another memo to all you budding archaeologists out there. Please, oh please, try to find some of Pilate's records sent to Tiberius. As a ruling governor, Pilate was chief of several things. He was a chief military officer. He was a chief judge or magistrate. He was a chief fiscal officer. And he was the chief entertainment provider. You heard about bread and circus? That was him. He was in charge of the chariot races, the white, the red, the blue, and the green factions. They actually had these teams, and people identified with them like we do with the bears, the rams, the lions, and the patriots. Speaking of bears, yes, there were dancing bears and panthers and mock naval battles. Yes, Pilate was responsible for all of these. And there was one more thing he was chief of. He was chief bribe acceptor. This role is employed in plenty of places in the world even today. It was true then. Cicero congratulated one of his friends on getting an appointment as procurator somewhere because, as he put it, he could now get something on the side that he deserved. As chief military officer, Pilate was the master and commander of all troops in his area, about 4,000 in Judea, as historians believe. There is a common misconception that every time some Roman soldier appears in scripture or in film or elsewhere, that the soldier is, in fact, Roman. Actually, only the senior officers are Romans, maybe 10% of the military pool. The rest were drawn from the local indigenous population. This was especially true in Judea because Jewish leaders would not enter the service of Rome. And Rome, in turn, realized that the best soldiers you can trust would be local people who hated the Jews, Samaritans, Syrians, and other anti-Semites. So the vast majority of Pilate's troops were not imported Romans, but local, non-Jewish, Jewish haters. There was an enormous clash of cultures between the two groups. The Jews thought they were superior to all. The Romans thought they should rule the world. They were the ones who had built Colosseums and the like. And they were particularly confounded with Jewish practices, like circumcision. Why would anybody do that? But the Romans were particularly accommodating to the Jews. They exempted them from Sabbath court appearances. Romans didn't take Saturdays off. They avoided touching money from the first fruits of the Jews. They made it a Roman crime of sacrilege for theft of their holy books or sacred money. And I love this one. They paid to have one bull and two goats sacrificed daily in the temple for Tiberius' safety. Talk about hedging your bets. What did Pilate look like? We know two things about Roman procurators. They had to be short-haired and clean-shaven. He also had to be at least 30 years old. That was the minimum requirement for being a governor. If he was wearing military garb, 
you'd find him wearing a leather tunic with a breastplate. If he was in state dress, you'd see him wearing a white toga with a purple border. What was he wearing at Jesus' trial? It was anyone's guess, as he could have been comfortable in his toga, or he may have wanted to demonstrate his military presence by appearing as a general. There are five stories we have of Pilate. Three come from Josephus, one from the Jewish historian Philo, the other from the Gospel of Luke. Each of these stories tells us something about Pilate that historians find useful in thinking about Jesus' trial before him. Josephus records Pilate's entry into Judea in the year 26 AD. He was the fifth Roman procurator to come to that region. He didn't normally live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea, about 60 miles northwest of there, on the coast. Caesarea Maritima was one of the amazing public projects that Herod the Great built from about 22 to 10 BC. It had a stunning seaport and harbor with a walkway over a mile long extending out as breakwater. It was the largest man-made harbor built in open sea through astonishing feats of engineering that allowed for underwater construction and laying of concrete made of a kind of lime and volcanic ash he imported from Italy, estimated at 44 shiploads at 400 tons each. Next to the harbor, he built storerooms, markets, wide roads, baths, and temples to Rome and Augustus. He built an amphitheater capable of seating 4,000 for plays and for gladiator fights. He built a hippodrome, a long, oblong racetrack capable of seating 10,000. Every five years, he hosted major sports competitions and gladiator combat games. The city had walls and gates and paved squares with huge statues and other marvels of Greco-Roman civilization. He built a citadel and a palace, and that was where Pilate mostly lived. At one of those sites is an event that would inaugurate Pilate and set the tone between him and the Jewish leaders right up to Jesus' trial. It was a standoff between them and Pilate at the Hippodrome, but Pilate picked the fight in Jerusalem. When he first came to the area, he marched into Jerusalem at night and posted a bunch of his flags around town. Past Roman troops restrained from carrying the emperor's picture or insignia on banners or flags when entering Jerusalem out of respect for Jewish religious sentiments. The Torah, in Exodus chapter 20, prohibits the making of any graven image or the likeness of anything that might serve as an idol for people to worship instead of God. Well, ancient Jews were in no way opposed to art as such. The notion was that in the holy city of Jerusalem, no temptation toward any idol should be fostered whatsoever. Other Roman leaders respected that. Not Pilate. He thought it was a sign of weakness. And so he posted flags with images or some insignia of Tiberius on them and then marched out. Don't mess with me. I'm in charge now, he seemed to want to say. And Tiberius loves me because look how much I honor him. And then he didn't even stay the night. He turned around and marched his troops back up to Caesarea, about 60 miles northwest on the coast. When the Jews awoke in the morning, they were alarmed. They sent emissaries to Pilate, asking him to take them down. Word got back quickly, it seems, that he would not. Jews started streaming out of Jerusalem to head north to Caesarea and implore him to change his mind. Josephus says that some 5,000 Jews traveled there. They implore Pilate even more. He refused to budge. For five days and nights, protesters stood outside his palace, picketing, as it were, and entreating him to take the flags down. On the sixth day, Josephus says, Pilate told all the demonstrators to meet him at the Hippodrome. If the numbers are correct, they had more than a thousand who wouldn't have seats there. Pilate showed up with a secret detachment of troops. On cue, the soldiers surrounded the Jews with swords and threatened to mow them down. But by surprise, the Jews fell to the ground, pulled their cloaks over their necks to expose them, and said they would rather be slaughtered than suffer such an infringement on their holy city. Cut off our heads, because we'd rather suffer death than have our sacred city defiled. So, what do you think Pilate was going to do next? Kill 5,000 Jews on his first week on the job? No, that wouldn't impress Tiberius. So he backed down. 
One historian summed up this event nicely because it tells much about Pilate's character and how we might predict that character to surface later. The episode, he says, shows, quote, a curious mixture of provocation, indecision, stubbornness, and finally weakness. Think about it. Provocation, indecision, stubbornness, and weakness. Pilate was just never very good about playing this game, what happens next? If I do this and then that, what will happen next? And what do you think the Jews thought after this experience? Oh, so this is how he acts. We know how to work him now. We know what buttons to push. Boys, we've got him. There was a second incident like that, that the ancient Jewish writer Philo records. And, alas, also with scant detail. Apparently, Pilate was staying in Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and he set up something called votive tablets for Tiberius. We really don't know what those were, but they must have, again, had some kind of image on them that caused the same kind of offense as the flags did. The Jews asked Pilate to take them down. Pilate refused. So several prominent Jews, including all four of Herod's sons, wrote to Tiberius and asked him to please tell Pilate to take them down. And Tiberius did so. He wrote to Pilate and rebuked him and told him to take him down. So Pilate took him down. And he put him up on the temple of Augustus in Caesarea instead. But what do you think, again, the Jews concluded about that experience? There's a third item we know about Pilate from the Gospel of Luke. It was on the eve of Jesus' second Passover, when Jesus wasn't there, and for reasons unclear, Pilate had his soldiers slaughter a bunch of Galileans in the temple forecourt while they were offering sacrifices. That meant their blood was mingling with the blood of the sacrifices. This was an outrageous act on multiple levels, not only because their people were murdered, but murdered in, of all places, our most holy temple, where we treasure the God of life and offer the lifeblood of his creatures to him as an expression of our love. And the Romans dared to shed the blood of our people and cause their blood to mix with our sacrifices. Why, you loathsome pig. Yes, this angered the Jews greatly, and rightly, and to their very core. Fourth item we get from Josephus, who tells us that the Romans were building a water conduit to Jerusalem. Pilate started pilfering out of the temple treasury to pay for it. The temple treasury. Not good. So as in Caesarea, we have a kind of reset on the protester and threat game played out previously, this time with different results. Pilate was in Jerusalem one day. A crowd of protesters started assembling near him. Pilate, I'm sure, could see the whole thing coming, and he was ready for some comeuppance. Again, gave a cue to his soldiers and had them surround the protesters. This time, he didn't wait for their sacrificial appeal, and presumably, the numbers were much smaller. He gave a nod, and the soldiers then took out cudgels and beat and killed many of them. Think you can try that on me again, do you? Memo to the Jews. Be sure to come in larger numbers next time. There's a fifth historical account we have of Pilate, but I'm going to save that for later. It comes after our story here. Do we know what any of Pilate's contemporaries thought of him? We have three to go on. Philo, the Jewish historian, greatly disliked him. Josephus said, quote, He was of an unbending and ruthlessly hard character. King Herod Agrippa I was quoted to have said, quote, Corruption, violence, robbery, oppression, humiliation, constant executions without trial, and unlimited intolerable cruelty were the order of the day. But careful historians have found these accurates unfair and inaccurate, as you might surmise if you asked a farmer in 1870 Georgia what he thought of Abraham Lincoln. You might get an honest answer, but it might not be fairly descriptive. There's one tall fact that stands in Pilate's favor. Tiberius let him reign for 10 years. That's an overly long time to suffer a bloodthirsty, corrupt oppressor, if Pilate really was one. And we have a pretty good picture of him from the Passion narratives. First, he showed scruples in how he handled Jesus. He never threw him down the stairs and said, yeah, go ahead and crucify the SOB. Second, 
He was no one's fool. He knew exactly what the Jewish leaders were up to in bringing Jesus to him, and he wanted no part of their petty envy. There's a guy we haven't talked about yet, and we need to for a bit because a lot of historians have thought he's had some role to play in Jesus' trial. Not any direct role whatsoever, but a kind of influence on Pilate that may have affected Pilate. A lot of historians do not think he had any role, but since they disagree, you should at least have some familiarity with him. And that is Lucius Aelius Sejanus, or Sejanus, as he's commonly known, which shows that we really can live without knowing Pilate's first name, too. Sejanus was one of those Roman figures who have these meteoric rises to power and influence, and then they crash and burn just as hard, even harder. Sejanus was born just about the same time as Jesus, and like Pilate, was in an equestrian family, not Roman nobility. Another horse rider, as we say. In about 16 AD, when he was no more than 20 years old, Tiberius Caesar appointed him commander of the Praetorian Guard, which is basically like being in charge of the Secret Service assigned to protect the president, but a whole lot more prestigious. And then there's all the drama of power, intrigue, and sex that follows. A budding ruler named Drusus was Tiberius's heir apparent. But Drusus died suddenly, possibly through poisoning, possibly poisoned by Sejanus. Possibly, said Sejanus's wife shortly before she was executed in the year 31 D, because Sejanus and Drusus's wife, Lavilla, had become lovers and had conspired to kill Drusus so that Sejanus could take his place as heir apparent to Tiberius. But Tiberius didn't know that at the time, and he was impressed with Sejanus's leadership, and so he gave him more and more duties. While Tiberius, now in his older years, started spending more and more time away from Rome over on the west coast at Capri. Sejanus used his newfound power to good personal effect, becoming Tiberius's spokesman, news filter, and conspiracy monger. Over the next few years, Sejanus lobbied Tiberius about permission to marry Lavilla. That way, he would have sufficient nobility and be able to become emperor after Tiberius was gone. And so Tiberius so consented in 30 AD. During the period from 29 to 30 AD, Sejanus had become Tiberius's exclusive representative in Rome, with the Senate even voting that his birthday be honored publicly and with public prayers and sacrifices being offered on behalf of, quote, Tiberius and Sejanus. He could just about feel the leaves circling his head. But sometime in early 31, Tiberius got a letter from his widowed sister-in-law, Antonia, and she told him, that Sejanus was plotting a revolt against him. Tiberius believed her, and he took quick reprisal. He appointed a different commander of the Praetorian Guard, and then tricked Sejanus into thinking that Sejanus was going to have virtual imperial power in order to cause Sejanus to appear in the Senate, and then be surrounded by the troops while the new commander read a scathing letter denouncing him and demanding his arrest. The senators complied, tried, and executed him the same day, October 31st, 31 AD. Why should we care about Sejanus? Or why, as we should say, do historians take interest in Sejanus? Because he was Pilate's protector, and he may have even been Pilate's appointer in 26 AD, but Josephus and other historians are not altogether clear on who it was exactly who appointed Pilate. But Pilate certainly knew who he was supposed to impress during this time when Sejanus was rising to power. And this fact adds another uncomfortable consideration to everything. Sejanus, at least according to the ancient Jewish historian Philo, was notoriously anti-Semitic. Sejanus hated Jews and wanted them exterminated. Some historians have given reasons to think Philo may have invented this anti-Semitic streak, but on the assumption he did not, how do you think Pilate may wish to be perceived as the governor of the Jews? We don't know for certain, but it sure makes sense. It also helps explain why Pilate first marched into Jerusalem with offensive banners to let them know who their new ruler was. He surely intended the offense because he did it at night and then left. And then there's another strange wrinkle. Tiberius was not as anti-Semitic as Sejanus was. And when Tiberius had Sejanus executed, 
Tiberius sent messages to the empire, to his procurators, that they were to treat the Jews better. And Pilate got this message too, which should have been sometime after 32 AD, and which may have influenced his, his own rule there. And here's the issue I've been holding for you from the beginning. Was Jesus tried under Pilate in 30 AD, when Sejanus was still in power, and when Pilate had every reason to impress him with his anti-Semitic behavior? Or was Jesus tried under Pilate in 33 AD, after Sejanus's fall from power, and his execution, and after Tiberius's instruction to treat the Jews better? Hmm. Guess we may need to know whether Jesus' trial was in 30 or 33 AD. Stay tuned for Lecture 7. Plenty of historians, Father Brown included, don't think this was a factor. And the reason seems to be of one of common sense. If Pilate really was an anti-Semite of the kind who wanted to impress Sejanus, then why didn't he have him executed summarily? As we'll see, he actually shows scruples in how he handled him. And if Pilate really feared running afoul of Tiberius's edict to treat Jews better, then why didn't he let Jesus go? Or was he treating Jews better by giving in to what the Jewish leaders wanted? Or was he just plain afraid of Tiberius himself? Plenty of other people had cause to be, as we'll talk about later. Let's move to the scene of where our action will be, the Praetorium. We know, as the Gospels tell us, that they took Jesus to the Praetorium. So where's that? Easy enough for us to determine, right? Let's just get some good archaeologists, have them dig through the rubble, and find out where that place really was. Unfortunately, we have no idea where the heck it was, because the word Praetorium was not a word for a specific place. It was a place marker for where the procurator actually was. Saying they took him to the Praetorium was like saying they took him to Pilate's place, not Pilate's palace, not Pilate's tower or fortress. It was simply was a traveling term. Wherever Pilate was, that's where the Praetorium was. It's kind of like when we might say, I took the kids to the circus. Oh yeah? Where? Last year it was here, this year it was there, it moves around. And so did the Praetorium with Pilate. Literally, the term means the camp tent of the army leader. And in the tent was a cella Carilis, a judgment seat on which the praetor sat. But praetorium involved to mean the residence of the governor. Wherever the governor goes, there goes the praetorium. Again, it's like when we say, the judge took the bench. The bench is wherever the judge is, not necessarily at the courthouse. The problem with this description in the Passion Narratives is that we don't know where Pilate actually was for his encounter with Jesus. It was at least within the city walls of Jerusalem because Mark says Jesus was, quote, led out to be crucified. It was also in a high-lying part because the crowd, quote, came up to Pilate. Two venues within the city compete for this distinction. One is the Fortress of Antonia. This was the massive stone fortress built smack dab against the northeast temple wall, a high line area, and another of those great public works projects launched by Herod the Great, who named it after his patron, Mark Antony, in 31 BC. At the time of Jesus' trial, it was used as barracks for Roman soldiers. It gave them a perfect vantage point to prepare for trouble because it loomed over the temple grounds and a large quadrant of the city. If you go there now, there's a one-acre model of first-century Jerusalem showing the Antonia with four towers. And you can see lots of cool pictures of it on the internet. But scholars and archaeologists have confirmed Josephus' description of it having only one tower. This would have been a logical place for Pilate to be when he was summoned to hear charges against Jesus. Jerusalem was in the midst of its high feast. Civil unrest tended to occur during high feasts. Pilate came down from Caesarea to stay in Jerusalem because of that potential for unrest. He could give immediate commands to troops within the fortress in the event some riot or disturbance broke out. Plus, you get to hang out with the boys, throw dice, drink Egyptian beer, whatever. But there's another candidate for the Praetorium, and Josephus commonly mentions it. Herod's palace. Down a bit, across the city, 
built against the western wall away from the temple and also in a high-line area on the west hill of Jerusalem, south of the Jaffa Gate. This is Herod the Great's palace, and it was every bit as luxurious as you would imagine something like that would be with an ego and power as great as Herod's was. It was several stories with spacious interior halls, external courtyards, and with walls high enough to drown out the rabble in the city outside. Servants quietly buffed marble floors and filled baths with hot water and served meals of chicken or pigeons or lamb or beef or fish with grape leaf wraps, goat cheese, eggs and bread and beans and garlic and olive oil and dates and figs and choice local and imported wines. Small bevies of doves fluttered in and around spacious water fountains in classic Roman and Greek statuary. Roman procurators had the right to stay where Herod stayed. They stayed at his palace in Caesarea, and they stayed at his palace in the city. The procurator, Jesius Florus, who governed from 64 to 66, chose to live at Herod's palace in the city, and he held court on the public square in the front. The procurator Felix, who governed from 52 to 60, liked the ocean breeze better, so he chose to live at Herod's palace in Caesarea. Herod's son, the one from up north in Galilee, yearned for the right to stay there. But no, he stayed at a much less luxurious, smaller palace several blocks away. Pilate had the right to stay at the old man's house because no ethnarch existed in that region, as you will recall. Herod Antipas could enjoy his reign in Galilee up in the north with all the flourish he could extract from people. But when he came to Jerusalem, he was just some foreign dignitary who'd have to get his own lodgings. Thus, Pilate got to stay at the Ritz while Herod had to settle for the Holiday Inn. Don't feel bad for him. I'm sure it came with a nice breakfast buffet, but without the bacon. So where do you think Pilate stayed when he came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover? At the barracks with all the smelly soldiers or at the Ritz? Let me weight the question just a bit more with a comment my wife made. Where do you think Pilate's wife stayed when she came to town with Pilate? We'll meet up with Claudia Procula in our next lecture, but it's worth mentioning her now because we know she came down from Caesarea to Jerusalem to be there for the feast too. Do you think for a minute she stayed at Antonia? Who wouldn't go for the massage and the manicure and the five-star fare at Herod's palace? Did Pilate pick a soldier's bed that night instead because of the tumult of the feast? Because of marital reasons? Well, that sort of personal information is just not part of our history, nor should it be, I suppose. In any case, take your pick. Pilate could have been either at Herod's palace or the Antonia, because either venue is possible, and we just don't know. As we mentioned, day was breaking when they brought Jesus to the praetorium, and the Jewish leaders don't enter because they want to avoid ritual defilement. There are so many things that interest historians in the trial of Jesus, and here's one of them. We don't know why the Jewish leaders thought they'd be defiled by entering it. There's nothing in the Levitical law that says Jews can't enter pagan households, even during feasts, nor do any of the 613 mitzvot or commandments speak to this issue either. Sure, there are dietary laws, but the Jews weren't going there for breakfast. Was there some fear they might come in contact with leavened bread if they entered the place during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? Was it because they thought Roman households or their places of governance were somehow intrinsically unclean? There's been a lot of speculation about why they thought so then, but we just don't know. Maybe we'll find out later. What's odd is that the Gospel writers added this by way of passing reference, as if everybody back then knew it was so. By now you know why the Jewish leaders were bringing Jesus to Pilate. The Sanhedrin had no power to execute criminals. It could try capital crimes. It couldn't execute them. The right of the sword was reserved to Rome. What then was Pilate expected to do? Pretty simple, according to his rule book. Make independent findings, enforce capital crimes under Roman law, and not meddle in Jewish law. For a thousand good reasons, Rome wanted no part of that, and we discussed three instances when Paul took advantage of the same jurisdictional protection several years later. 
Let's talk about Roman trial process, at least as it existed in Rome. It didn't quite operate that way in the provinces, but if you knew how it went in Rome, then you'd also know why they did what they did in the provinces to achieve similar effect. Roman legal procedure was a long, evolving development over several centuries that ended up forming the basis for modern procedure that exists in the Western world to this day. It started with something known as the Twelve Tables, which were a set of laws written down on 12 bronze tables in around 450 BC. And these laws were offered as a way of better representing the interests of the ordinary people, the plebeians against the dominating interests of the aristocrats, the patricians, which meant men with ancestors. One of those laws concerned how civil disputes would be decided, and the procedure it recognized continued for more than 500 years through the late second century, which of course included our time period here. Under this procedure, the plaintiff approached the defendant in public and called for him to come to court. If he refused, he could be taken there by force. The trial itself was divided into two parts. The first was a preliminary hearing held before a magistrate who decided whether there was an issue to be contested, and if so, what it was. Each step in this procedure was extremely formal. If the wrong words were used by either party, that party might lose the case. After the issues were delineated and sureties set, both parties agreed upon a Eudex, who was neither a lawyer nor a magistrate, but a prominent layman to try the case. But these prominent laymen were steeped in the knowledge of law and governance and revered for their sense of justice. The proceedings before the Eudex were more informal. Advocates spoke and gave evidence and witnesses often appeared. The Eudex made a decision but had no power to execute it. If the defendant refused to pay the fine or make restitution within a certain period of time, he could be brought by force to the magistrate. Then his property could be seized or he could be made slave to the plaintiff to work off the debt or property claim. Sometime in the second century BC, as cases became more complex, this procedure was refined somewhat and issues had to be put down in writing and presented to the magistrate, who would decide whether a given case would go forward to a eudex. This stage in Roman law became known as the formulary system and eventually evolved into the third stage of Roman law known as the cognitio extraordinaria, in which this referral to a eudex was basically scrapped, and courts would issue a summon to the parties, a trial was held exclusively by a magistrate, and the court became responsible for the executors of the sentence with rights of appeal. This process continued after the fall of the Roman Empire and through the formation of Western civilization thereafter, right through to present modern times. But with this description, you can see the general contours of legal process that was used in ancient Rome at the time of Jesus, where a plaintiff would challenge a defendant with some claim or grievance, and a magistrate would decide if there was anything worth deciding. If so, the parties would then get to agree on which layman, or eudex, would resolve their dispute. Sort of like today when parties are bound to an arbitration agreement and have to agree on a common arbitrator or arbitrators, Advocates spoke, gave evidence, as it says, and witnesses often appeared. Some of Rome's greatest leaders were its greatest advocates or jurists, like Cicero, Cato the Elder, and Tacitus. Trial by jury was not a concept quite recognized by ancient Romans, but there were glimpses of it in relation to more communal judgments made from time to time, and which might even involve huge crowds. But the process as we know it, trial by a jury of one's peers didn't start until centuries later. Instead, the process that an ancient Roman jurist would have employed was based on this somewhat informal structure. Hear the complaint, hear the defense, listen to the witnesses, consult with other jurists if need be, and do something he thinks is just. This is what we seem to know about proceedings before Roman procurators. They were fairly simple, and yet close enough to our form of trials today. The Roman governor was a single judge. He didn't sit on a panel with anyone else or make any rulings through an assembly. He typically was accompanied by junior barristers and attendants. They'd brief him in advance on the issues involved, the potential precedent that applied, and the litigants involved. It was notable 
that the proceedings were in public, not in secret, which is why trials to this day are necessarily public all throughout Western civilization. Not even the parties can agree to keep them private. The press and the public have an inherent right to know what's going on. Pilate understood this too, without the New York Times explaining it to him. Also of note, trials were conducted in Greek in the eastern provinces. We don't know what language Roman procurators held their trials in when they were in Judea, but we do know that Judea was considered an eastern province. We also know that many Jewish leaders knew Greek, so it's certainly possible that Pilate conducted his trials in Greek. And it's certainly possible that Jesus knew Greek too. And not just because he was God, he could speak Swahili if he wanted to. But as a young carpenter in Nazareth, I'm sure he probably did work in the nearby towns of Sephoris and Nain, where Greek was spoken. Hearings began just after sunrise, about 6 a.m. Sounds early to be starting business? Not to them. When you live in a latitude where it gets dark early and you don't have electricity, you go to bed early and you wake up early. Public officials and military officers especially frequently rose well before dawn, shaved, dressed, ate, readied for work at first light, if not before. The Emperor Vespasian finished his desk work by dawn. Pliny would complete his workday by 10 a.m. Merchants, too, were used to this routine. So everybody at the Sanhedrin knew that if they were going to get Jesus before Pilate, they had better do so quickly because sunrise was a coming. Somehow, you'd get yourself on Pilate's docket so he'd know how many trials he had that day. I don't know how you'd get to be first on the docket. Maybe that's where chief bribe acceptor part came into play. I wouldn't be surprised if that may have happened here. If they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver so they could just nab him, what do you think they'd pay to make sure they were the first case on Pilate's docket that morning? Probably, just like in courtrooms today, a clerk calls out to make sure all the parties are present, and then, once confirmed, lets the judge know. When all are ready, the clerk would open with a formal summons of the parties. The plaintiff would utter an indictment. The defendant would then state his defense. How long this took might depend on the complexity of the issues or the skill of the advocates. But it was done so the judge could see what was at issue. What did the parties agree on? What did the parties disagree on? Courts in modern times do the same thing, too. Trim the issues for resolution. The administration of justice, at least in principle, is not a terribly difficult or complex thing to do, which is why its larger features have remained recognizably similar whenever there is justice to administer, with noted exceptions in totalitarian regimes where justice really doesn't exist. One interesting difference between now and then, which is something of relatively modern innovation, that is, modern if you consider, say, the last couple hundred years or so, is the right to examine your opponent. Back then, the judge would examine the parties. The parties would not examine each other. The event was much like when two squabbling children come to a parent to decide the matter. The parent does all the examining. I'm sure, though, you'd find litigants clamoring, like children clamoring to a parent, ask him about this, ask him about this, which would get you around this rule against cross-examination. Rules of evidence didn't quite exist as they did today, but I'd bet some form of them had to exist as of natural course. The objections we have today based on relevance, materiality, foundation, even hearsay, I think are products of natural law. I'd like to think that any wise Roman judge would have employed these same evidentiary tools too if he were diligent in the pursuit of justice. Time allotted for trial back then might have been an issue, just as it is for harried parents. Quick, get to the point I don't have all day. A ruler who has a lot on his plate, especially during the times of pressure or a time of potential crisis like a high feast, is going to rush things along and not stand on formal procedure. Thus, the gist of Roman trial procedure was that the procurator was given a free assessment of testimony, with the chief means of proof being the testimony of witnesses and the statements of the defendant. Most people like to think they can tell when someone's telling the truth and someone's not, and procurators, I'm sure, like to think they could do that too, and probably better than most could. Parents do it all the time of necessity, and they get pretty good at it, even if they don't like to have to do it. Plus, remember, the procurator had assistance with them. 
Judges often talk with their clerks and use them as sounding boards. Sometimes they're swayed, sometimes not. But it's important, I think, to know that decisions were not supposed to be decided on one's whim or dictate. I'm sure there were bad judges then, like there are bad judges now. But the point is that they saw a higher goal worth striving for that aimed at something good, something noble, a just result, based on the rule of law. After the procurator decided on what he was going to do, he would sit down on a kind of bench called the judgment seat and announce his verdict. A herald would shout out the verdict to make sure everyone heard it. The Romans wanted nothing misunderstood. Remember, justice was a public event. And this announcement was important too because a sentence would be carried out immediately. No appeal in the provinces. Judgment now, sentence now, call the next case. An early Roman trial may have been one of the reasons why the Sanhedrin held its trial at night. Not bad planning when you think about it. You've got a good six to eight hours to play with if you need it. Start by 9 or 10 p.m. If you're lucky, get a conviction in a couple of hours. Be done by midnight. If you're really lucky, that mafioso Annas might get an admission and let everyone go home early. And if you're not lucky and you're having problems getting the witnesses to match their stories up just right, well, you still should be able to get a conviction before daybreak. And if you can't and the coffee runs out, just tear your robes and declare victory. Something like that seems to have happened. Because Matthew says they took Jesus to Pilate at, quote, the early hour. And remember, Luke, who has that strange hiccup that implies but doesn't compel a second trial, says that day was breaking when they formalized their decision, say, 6 a.m., which makes sense from even modern timelines there. In early April, sunrise is about 6.30 a.m. First light, therefore, saw figures leading a criminal from Caiaphas's house to the praetorium, whether that was to Antonia or to the Ritz, and they had the convict bound, just like Isaiah prophesied, quote, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, end quote. In our next session, we'll turn to the high point of our drama here, Jesus before Pilate. How did his trial proceed? Was it fair? What did Pilate think? What were Pilate's options? What did Pilate fear? I mean, really fear. Please join us for Lecture 6, Jesus Before Pilate.